let's turn to the uh, topic of work. So what is the connection between Jesus and your work? What is the connection between Jesus and your work? Just, just take 30 seconds just to think what you'd say is the answer to that. What is the connection between Jesus and your work? So to unpack the question a little bit, do we go to work because God has given us a special vocation? That you are a Christian student or a Christian bin collector or a Christian doctor, whatever? Is that the connection? Are we supposed to find some great kind of sort of spiritual fulfillment in our work? Should we work as much as we can or as hard as we can because this is the godly thing to do, this is what God wants us to do? Or should we work as little as we can because then we've got more time for gospel work? Is that the connection? And what are we trying to do with our work? Are we trying to change the world with our work? Are we trying to make this world a better place for God with our work? And what about the fruit of our work? Will our work last into eternity? Are we doing something in our work that will actually change the new creation, change heaven? Or do we work purely to earn money in order to keep ourselves going and give to the work of the gospel? And then you can ask all of those questions, because I'm assuming that as I've been asking those questions, you've been thinking I'm talking about paid work, but you could ask all those questions about unpaid work. So the work, for example, of a mother in a home, voluntary work, or the work that students do, study. What is the connection between Jesus and our work? That's the topic tonight. I want to say that this is a huge, huge topic. Um, in one short talk like this, we can really just scratch the surface and begin to answer some of those questions and give us a sort of framework for thinking. We will get quite practical towards the end, but there'll be lots of thinking and, and questions uh, to think about. We can chat over dinner and, and beyond. Uh, in addition to that, I want to recommend two resources. One is this book called Revolutionary Work, actually three resources. One is this book called Revolutionary Work. Thoroughly, thoroughly recommend that. If you're going to read one book about work, then let this be it. Um, the second resource is NYC. Um, come to NYC, and as Lydia said, we get this opportunity to kind of dig deeper, and one of the seminars at NYC will be the topic of work. So we'll be drawing a line from the cross to our work in, in some detail. And then the third resource to recommend um, is the SPUR conference. Bless you. Um, the, the SPUR conference, which is in a couple of weeks' time, and I think that's not open to everybody. Is that right, Joe? Second, third years. But if you're, if you're second, third year or beyond, then the Spur Conference is a great time, a whole Saturday, to kind of consider the topic that I'm going to come to right at the end of this, this talk in more detail. Well, let's begin then with the story of work. We're going to crack this topic open by looking at the story of work across the Bible in three parts. And I'm going to get you to turn to Genesis 3 in a moment, but for now you'll see three um, quotes from Genesis 1, 2, and 3, 1, 2 on the sheet. Work at the beginning. Have a look at them with me. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. 
Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. And then Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Notice what these passages tell us about work. Firstly, they tell us that God works and rests. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. God is a worker. I may not find that particularly surprising, but if you met some of the gods of the pagan world, the, the imaginary gods of the Greeks and the Babylonians and so on in those days, you would find that those gods were kind of pleasure-seeking layabouts. Anyone who's doing classics or anything like that, you'll know some of those gods. The great interest they had was with their own leisure and pleasure. To them, the human race and the world and running the world was a kind of interruption. They certainly didn't work. No, humans worked for the gods. And so it is striking to read that the God of the Bible is a worker. He works. He goes to work. He puts in the effort of creating. And he does it not for his good, but for the good of other people. He is not an idle God. He works. But notice in verse 2 as well, God is not consumed or defined by his work or identified by his work. He also rests. And we can talk about what that means another time, but there is this difference between God working and God resting. He can sort of enter into the enjoyment of creation. He can do other things than work. He knows that life is not all about work. He can separate the two. Now, you'll know that in Genesis 1, there is God, and he then makes man in his image. So we've just seen something about God, and so we should expect that feature of God to be replicated in humanity. He makes us in his image, and therefore the second thing we see is that man works and rests as well before the fall. Notice all three of these passages come before sin enters the world. Now that is important to notice because it's very tempting, isn't it? Because work is hard, it's tempting to see work as belonging to the world after the fall, almost as if work is a kind of a punishment for our rebellion. <coughs> but these passages come before the fall. Man's work is natural. It's part of the order of creation, just as marriage comes before the fall as well. And notice in Genesis 1, 27, 28, that man's work springs from the fact that we are made in the image of God. God works and he creates us as workers. Work is part of being human. But then, after the fall, work does change. It becomes toil. Adam's enjoyable, satisfying work in the garden did not last for long. The rebellion in Genesis 3 involved Adam and Eve trying to rule without reference to God, with the result that God's judgment is pronounced on the man and woman in a series of curses, and one of those curses in particular changes man's relationship to work. The judgment of God itself falls specifically on work. Have a look at Genesis 3. This is when you need to open your Bibles. Genesis 3, 17. <coughs> I won't give you a page number because it's just the third chapter from the beginning. Genesis 3, 17 to 19. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. 
It will produce thistles and thorns for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. <coughs> Sorry. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, notice that this judgment affects our work in three ways. Firstly, work is now hard and painful. Work is now hard and painful. It's worth knowing that. Sometimes um, people go through university and they kind of get their first full-time job and they're all you know, thrilled that they got a job, they got through the interviews, and, and then a couple of weeks in they come and say, I'm looking for a new job. And I say, why? So it's hard. And I thought, well, that's why you get paid. They call it compensation. Have you ever heard the expression, you're taking your pound of flesh? That's exactly what you do. When you go to work, you give your pound of flesh. That is why you get paid, because it's hard. They don't pay you just to have a good time. And work is hard, notice, in verse 17, because the ground is cursed. The earth is cursed. And if you think about it, whatever field of work you're in, whether you're a farmer or an astrophysicist or whatever, whatever field of work you're in, you're dealing at some level with the elements of this world. And they resist you. They, they're cursed. We stay in a cottage in the summer and we, we stay on a farm and we watch the farmers working and, you know, they sit up in these massive tractors, you know, and they spray the fields and we haven't noticed, we were staying next to the field and they're growing different things in each field. Each year we, we go and one time there was potatoes. You know how hard it is to get potatoes to grow in this country? You have to spray them with chemicals three times a week. You think about that next time you wash your potatoes. Three times a week the farmer comes out and trundles around his field with these chemicals because potatoes are blighted by all sorts of funguses and rot and pests. And just to get the potatoes to grow, the farmer is a, having a constant battle. And that's the same for any field of work. Work is hard because the ground is cursed. But that's not all. The second thing that has changed is that we now work sinfully. We now have a, a relationship to work that is wrong in our hearts. It's coming from our side as well as the ground. And you can see that in, in every workplace, laziness, overwork, pride dishonesty, idolatry, where we think we can build a name and glory and meaning for ourselves by our work. We take shortcuts. We very rarely work as well as we could. And that brings us to the third thing the fall has done. It has made work what the wisdom writer in Ecclesiastes calls meaningless. Now, I don't know if you know the book of Ecclesiastes, but in the book, which is kind of uh, portrayed as written by or spoken by King Solomon, King Solomon learned his lesson the hard way. He put everything into his work. He literally tried to build heaven on earth. He tried to kind of recreate this absolute perfect Garden of Eden world. And at the end of it, he looked at his life's work and look at what he said uh, on the sheet. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 11. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Now it's important to understand what he means there. This word meaningless is, if you've ever studied the book, you'll know it's a key word. It doesn't mean quite what the English word meaningless means. It doesn't mean pointless. It doesn't mean useless. Older translations have the word vanity. 
which come from the Hebrew word hevel, which is breath. It's a word that means what it sounds like. This breath that is like a kind of mist that just disappears as soon as you breathe it out. That's what he's talking about. That's behind the word meaningless. And so what he's saying is what he achieved, all this great achievement, in the big scheme of things, it doesn't last. It's like breath. It just disappears into the mist of time. And so here is Solomon, the greatest worker the world has ever seen, the greatest achiever the world has ever seen. He looks at what he's done and says, it's, it's not lasting. It, nothing was gained. And that word gain is another key word in the book. There's no kind of final profit. There's nothing finally to be shown for this work. Well, that takes us to the second stage of the story, over the page, the work of Jesus. Because you might be saying, well, in the light of that, why bother? Why do we work at all? Why don't we just sit in the chapel and sing songs? So the work of Jesus is the second point. The reason Solomon's attempt failed was because this is Jesus' role. See, remember back in Genesis 1, God gave to man and woman the mandate to work. And Adam fails. Solomon fails. Who succeeds? Who actually does what God gives to Adam to rule the earth successfully? Well, the only person who does it is Jesus. Jesus is the one who succeeds where Adam fails. He is the one who fulfills Adam's role to rule the earth. So there is no one who got work so right as Jesus. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but Jesus came to earth and he worked. He gave his life in service to God. You know those miracles he did when he's sort of calming the storm and turning water into wine. Those are little glimpses of Jesus controlling, ruling the creation in the way that Adam never did, never could. And no one has given themselves more fully and completely to the work of God. And the work of God that Jesus did culminated in that cross that Jack was talking about as the kind of centre of everything in the Bible. The cross as the ransom for many to deal with the problem of sin. For all our failure to work, Jesus took that and put it on the cross. All the pain, all the toil, all the curse of Genesis 3, Jesus' work was to gather it up and deal with it on the cross. Now that is the most important thing we're going to say this evening. That changes everything. That changes our relationship with work. Because it means that only in Christ, only in relationship with Jesus, can you have a right relationship to work. And so the most important thing we're going to take away from tonight is that working rightly begins by making Jesus the centre of life. How do you do that? It's very, very easy. Let me show you in John 6. In John chapter 6, there's a little conversation between Jesus and uh, the people who have witnessed one of his miracles. And he says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. Beautifully, beautifully simple, isn't it? How do you become someone who has a, from the wrong relationship to work to the right relationship to work? How do you make that transformation? How do you stop wasting your life? 
It begins as we trust in Jesus' work. As we actually, John 6, 29, believe, have faith in the one that he sent. We become right workers when we accept Jesus' work on our behalf, dying on the cross to pay for all our sins, all our laziness, all our pride, all our overwork, all our underwork. We become right workers when we trust in the work that Jesus has done. And so the most important thing we're going to take away tonight is Jesus is the one true worker. He is the one perfect worker who has fulfilled God's work for Adam on our behalf. This is the big thing. This is the big change. Now, can you see what that means? That means that whatever else we come away with, and we will get to some very, very practical applications in a moment, but whatever else we do and think about work, whatever else you do with your life when it comes to work, there are in fact only two ways to work. Only two. You can work in Adam, or you can work in Christ. You can do man's work, or you can do God's work. You can do work that builds the kingdom of man on earth that will ultimately fail, or you can do work that will last because you're doing it as part of Jesus' work. Only two ways to work. You can work for your own glory, or you can work for Jesus' glory. You can work for your own comfort and security or for his. And so if you're a Christian, if you're someone who believes in Jesus, you get to work differently. You can work now with Jesus as your master, freed from pride and competitiveness and greed and escapism, motivated not by material gain, secure in him, rewarded by him, having a status in him. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's really good news. Well, that is the fundamental choice. See, when we talk about this topic of work, one question people really get hung up about is, what is the best work for me to do? Should I be an engineer or a church planter? Should I be a homemaker or a hairdresser? Should I be a teacher or a doctor or a pastor or a pirate? Well, not a pirate. That's out of bounds because it's immoral. But the others. <laughs> but those questions are way down the scale of importance. In fact, those questions the Bible isn't really interested in. What you do, the Bible is interested in who you are doing it for. Are you working for Adam or for Christ? For my glory or for God's? But there's one last part of the story. We mustn't leave it there. We must see where this all uh, comes to in the end. See, a particular question that is often asked about work is what work lasts? Remember, Solomon said, Nothing is gained under the sun. There's no lasting profit. And that view has been challenged and is being challenged in Christian circles recently. There is a very popular view that actually what we do now will actually last and carry through. Let me give you a couple of um, quotes um, as examples of this. Here is a popular author, Julian Hardiman, uh, who says, The best cultural products or achievements of different nations and cultures will be brought into the new heavens and the new earth. In some way, all our deeds follow us, so everything we do is of eternal significance. It's very significant, that, isn't it? So the things we do now are going to actually be there in the new creation. Or here is one from Anglican theologian Tom Wright. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, 
uh, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, needy, loving your neighbor as yourself. All these things will last into God's future. They're part of what may, we may call building for God's kingdom. It's really worth thinking this through. See, this is a very attractive idea, isn't it? You know, the average worker <coughs> will work 80,000 hours, you know, 40 years or whatever, 80,000 hours is a lot of time, isn't it? And isn't it a nice idea to think that actually that work will have some payback in eternity? It's a nice idea, isn't it? Until you meet someone with a really, really boring mundane job, like a road sweeper or something. Although personally, I've always wanted to be a road sweeper. I think it looks, on our street, it looks very needed job. <laughs> but what if your business is to tie balloon dogs for a living? You know those men who go around children's parties and they tie balloon dogs? Will the balloon dog last into eternity? It doesn't last five minutes, does it? But strangely enough, people who make these kind of arguments don't tend to mention that kind of work. Julian Hardiman says the best cultural products or achievements. And when you sort of interrogate that, you, you kind of think actually the best products of the culture to him are kind of operas and paintings and things like that. Well, turn to 2 Peter 3. Let's see what the Bible says about this. And we'll have a page number if someone's got one. <coughs> Thank you. One, two, did I say 1 Peter? 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3. Everyone 2 Peter 3. Okay. We'll pick it up in verse 5. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But the day, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. I pull out those verses because I want you to notice first, there is continuity and discontinuity in the passage. Some things stay the same and some things change. And the debate circles around where Peter puts the emphasis. Does he put the emphasis on the change or the thing remaining the same? Does he put the emphasis on the continuity or the discontinuity? Well, some people who want to stress the continuity, that is, things continuing into the new creation, say that this passage, the centre of it is the flood. Notice that idea of the flood deluging the world. And they look at that and say, well, think about it. When the flood came at the time of Noah, God didn't completely annihilate the earth. And so if Peter is using the flood as an analogy for Jesus' return, we're looking at a world that is simply cleansed of evil. And that means your poem, your painting, your hospital, your well, whatever it is, will carry through into the new creation. The problem is it doesn't fit with the line of argument Peter is making. So look at the verses surrounding those passages I read. Peter's main argument is that although it seems like God is taking a long time to bring about the end of the world, he will keep his promises. Verse 3, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. 
So the context is that people are denying the fact that the last day is going to come. The denial amounts to a denial of God's word. And that's why throughout the passage, Peter stresses the reliability of God's word and his promises. Verse 5, but they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So in other words, God promised a judgment at the time of the flood and it happened. God has promised a judgment at the end and it will happen. That's the point. The word of God will be kept. You can rely on it. And now look at the verses at the end of the section, 11 to 13. Here, he changes the metaphor from the flood to fire and melting. And I think this language therefore implies more than just a mere washing of the world. It's a remaking, an unmaking and a remaking. Verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and new earth, the home of righteousness. Can you see how I think the stress is more on the discontinuity, isn't it? Everything's going to be destroyed. Heaven and earth will be destroyed and there'll be a new heaven and earth. So there is some continuity. There's, there's heaven and earth. It's not some different place, but it's new. It's as if the earth is a big lump of gold that gets melted down and refashioned into something else. And this has huge implications for those views of work that I mentioned before, that if you believe that what you do now is going to carry on into the end, then of course it will make a huge difference to what you do. <coughs> if we do believe that the work we do, those 80,000 hours, will produce something in eternity, it will of course determine what things we do. Will it, if I'm an engineer and I've made a bridge, will my bridge go through? If I'm a painter, does my painting go through? If I'm a dentist, do the teeth I fix here and now make it into the new creation? That's the implication, isn't it? But if that's not right, what does go through? Well, look at the passage. What do you think? What does go through into the new creation? Look at verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? What kind of people ought you to be? And look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What goes through into the new creation? One thing only. See what it is? People, isn't it? It's people who go through into the new creation. That's the thing that lasts. And Peter gives us two implications for that. Verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. First implication is that if it's people that go through, then godliness now really matters. If it's people that last into the new creation, it doesn't matter who, whether you're a dentist or a dog balloon tire. What matters is you're a godly dentist or a godly dog balloon tire. That's what matters. God has made you for eternity in his image. 
And so Peter is saying, well, you better make sure you're ready for eternity. Better make sure you're the kind of person who is going to be fit to live in the new creation. Which, of course, in case we're thinking, well, that's a tall order. In the opening of his letter, Peter says, are those who through the righteousness of God, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, have received faith as precious as ours. So you want to be godly, you start the Christian life, you believe in Jesus, you receive that righteousness. That's the most important thing. And secondly, what's the other implication? Verse 9. If people are the one thing that lasts into the new creation, the second implication, first implication is godliness, second implication is evangelism. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, why God has not yet returned, why Jesus has not yet returned, because he wants more people to repent. He wants the word to go out for people to be saved. And if people are the thing that lasts into the new creation, then you better make sure it's your life's work to get yourself there and to get others there. Those two implications. Well, let's uh, work out some implications of this. And I've got five, and we're going to go through these fairly quickly, but this is when we get down to some detail. Firstly, work is normal, necessary, and good, but it's not ultimate. See, living in this end time that Peter is talking about means holding two truths in tension. On the one hand, the world as we know it is going to come to an end. God is going to burn it up and remake it. And that warns us not to have too grand a view of our work because it won't last. And so it doesn't actually matter what you do now in the sense that those two authors I quoted think it matters because that is not what our work is for. Our work is not building the kingdom of God in the future. In fact, there's no encouragement in the New Testament that the work on my painting or song or poem or novel or prize-winning invention is going to be there in the new creation. So we must not deceive ourselves that it will be. So a sure way to waste your life is to put all your identity in work, thinking that it matters that much. On the other hand, I said there's a tension, there's a tightrope to it. On the other hand, work is significant. It is worthwhile to say that something is not eternally significant does not mean to say it's not very significant. No, it is very significant. It is good. It is important. And this is important to say because having read 2 Peter 3, an understandable reaction, one that you'll see in the New Testament is to say, well, if all this is going to be destroyed, why bother working at all? But that's not right either. Because as we saw, work is good. It's normal. It's part of God's creation. It's part of being a human being. It's like Food, sex, marriage, etc. They're part of God's created order, even though we're now in part of the fall, we're in the fallen world. And so work is good and normal, it's not ultimate. And so we don't need to turn it into something it's not, and we don't need to denigrate it. Listen to this from Psalm 104. The moon marks off the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then man goes out to his work, to his labour until evening. 
How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. That's a lovely picture, isn't it, of the lion going out in the dark to get his prey and the man going out in the morning to labour. In other words, work is completely natural. Just as a lion needs to eat, man needs to eat. It's part of nature along with the rhythms of the season. So work is normal, whether you're a Christian or not. But it's not ultimate. Secondly, it doesn't matter what you do. For the world, it matters enormously because work is connected to status. See, right now, when you, if you're a fresher, you, you've gone through that period, everyone's asking you those questions, which college you in, where are you from, what are you studying? But in a few years' time, the questions will be different and it will be, what do you do? And the answer to that question gives you a social order in our society. If you answer that question in a few years' time, I'm a brain surgeon, you're quite up there. If you answer that question, I'm a dog balloon tyre, you're kind of down here. Well, I quite admire those people. And if you're some, you know, lorry driver, wear a doctor, nurse, teacher, teacher up here, of course. Um, <laughs> see what I mean? I'll give you a little story, a little illustration of this. We were once at an event at someone else's house. It's a very, very nice house. It was 10 times as valuable as the house we live in, out in the countryside. And the owners of the house had given their house over for this musical event that we were at. I think one of our daughters was involved in it. And there were other parents there, and there was this little kind of performance around the grand piano. And the owners of the house were not there. And at the end of the evening, I found myself kind of standing by the door. I don't know why I was just standing by the door. And everybody was kind of filing out, and we were just all saying goodbye to each other. And this couple filed out, and they started talking to me. And... He said, well, he introduced himself, I said, I'm, I'm so-and-so, I'm the headmaster of such-and-such such a school, and this is my wife, Mrs. So-and-so, and she's the deputy head of such-and-such such a school. And I said, well, that's lovely, I'm Danny. And then, <laughs> as we walked out to the car park together, they looked a little bit sheepish. You see what they'd done? They thought I was the owner of the house. And so they'd pegged me at this social scale, and they wanted me to know that they were at the same social scale by telling me they were headmasters. They wanted me to know that they were part of the same club and they did that by telling me their job. In the world, status is everything, isn't it? Status is what you do. It is one of the great forces behind career ambition. And the other is job satisfaction must be fulfilling and enjoyable. And I remember taking our children to the year six assemblies. Do you remember the year six assemblies? When they always ask you, you know, you go in off secondary school, what do you want to be when you grow up? Not what do you want to do when you grow up, what do you want to be when you grow up? And all the year sixes file out and they all have these ma massive ambitions, don't they? Do you remember those? You want to be the world champion wrestler, you know, famous ballet dancer, I want to be a pop singer, I want to play for Man United. And no, no one has just, well then our son comes along and says, I want to be an Eddie Stobbert truck driver. That was what he said. <laughs> well, why not? And Christians often try and Christianize these drives by using the language of calling and vocation. So God has called me, I've heard people say this, to be a doctor, to be a lawyer. Someone once told me they had been called to the upper echelons of the fashion industry I've never heard anyone say God has called them to be a street sweeper or I've got a vocation 
as a delivery driver or rider or whatever. And I think the person with the greatest job satisfaction actually is that guy at the tip. Have you ever been to the tip? You know, the people at the tip who help you unload your car. That's the most satisfying job in the world. And if you want a job that really does make a difference to the world, then the bin collector. You know, if, the, if, if we stop collecting the bins, we would soon have a health epidemic. But lose a few heart surgeons, you're not going to notice that quickly. So it doesn't matter what you do. But thirdly, it matters why you do it. The Bible is for hard work and against laziness. Proverbs 26, 14. You might want to think about this tomorrow morning when your alarm goes off. Proverbs 26, 14. As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. It's a brilliant picture, isn't it? He's attached to his bed the same way a door is attached to his hinges. Some of you are laughing because you recognise the picture all too clearly. It is so nice in bed, isn't it? So warm, so comfortable. And if you get out of bed when the alarm goes off, you're going to have to start the day and it's cold. And So you press the snooze button one more time, roll over for just another few minutes. And the book of Proverbs says that's not good. Laziness is not good. But that is not a great surprise. In fact, most of our culture thinks laziness is not good. We are a culture that actually applauds hard work and condemns laziness. It's not a particularly countercultural part of the Bible. But look at Ephesians 4. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Now that is countercultural. The Bible applauds hard work, not because it's going to give us some sort of fulfillment or satisfaction, but because it's going to give us a means to help people who are in need. See, at the Year 6 Assembly, we were constantly told, weren't we, you've got to do what you want to do. You've got it in you to, to be the ballet dancer and the Man United player. You can do it. If only you try hard enough. That's what we've all been told, the Blue Peter Gospel. You can do it because you need that kind of satisfaction. You can prove yourself. That's what you've all been told, isn't it? But Paul says, no, do it so that you can share with those in need. That is countercultural. Have you ever heard a careers advisor or head teacher on speech day commending hard work so that you can love other people better? Very countercultural. But that is exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying if you don't work, you don't eat. And if you don't work, you are dependent on other people and you can't love people, which is part of your gospel ministry to love people. And you can do that by being generous with them and not being dependent on them. And if you want to think through this a little bit more, there are various parts of the New Testament, Galatians 6, 10, 2 Corinthians 8, those are good places to look at, and the whole of 1 Thessalonians, where we see that work is a way of loving people. It's a way of loving the community. It's a way of doing good in Christ. Now, what about, about this? If your present work is study, you're not being paid to work, are you now, mostly? Most of you are paying for the privilege. It's a deferred payment. You're kind of stacking it up, that, that loan that is becoming nastier and nastier each year. So you're paying for the privilege. And to some extent, the country, the government, maybe your parents, me, the taxpayer, you know, um, have invested in you to do this study. 
But more to the point, you've been given the privilege of learning about God's world that millions and millions of people would love to have. So I think one application is just as it's loving to work hard in the coffee shop or in the doctor's surgery or whatever to do good to the community just because it's loving. Well, I think it's good and it's loving for you as students to work hard right now. That doesn't mean say you're gonna idolize your grades, but you're gonna work hard. Call me old fashioned, but university is about education, isn't it? I think that sometimes get, gets forgotten when I listen to the students on my street, not you guys who live on my street who are here. <laughs> but sometimes I think they don't realize why they're at university. They think they're at university as a three-year pass for an extended party that they can pay off another time. Or they think they're at university because that's just what you do. It's just a rite of passage. But call me old-fashioned, but I think you're at university to learn. Is that right? to get an education, to actually find out about the world, not just to get this kind of, I was gonna say useless, but this piece of paper at the end of it on a scroll where you have to pay 60 pounds to hire a funny hat to receive. You're at university to learn. And so be a learner, be, don't be the cynic in your seminar, be the keenest person, be the most engaged person, be the person who emails the lecturers and say, I didn't understand that, can you explain that? Make your lectures work there. They, they can be lazy sometimes. <laughs> Make them work for your 9,200 pounds. Be the most generous person in your seminar. Help the people who are struggling. Set up those little revision things. Some of my best times at university, those little revision groups, you know, go and talk about Shakespeare and whatever. Not if you're studying engineering, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> Don't fall into the trap for living for your grades, but at the same time, be someone who works hard at your studies. Be the best person, the most engaged person in your seminar group because you are working in Christ. And this is the work he's given you to do at the moment. Don't need any more justification for it than that. Fourthly, if you are a Christian, you already have a career. Did you know that? You already have a career. And all Christians have the same career. Or did you know that the word career comes from a French word which means originally to plough headlong and single-mindedly into something. We actually use the word today in English, don't we? The, the car careered into the river. So a career is this single-minded, headlong project of your life. It's the, it's the all-consuming thing of your life which everything else gets um, sort of submitted to. A thing you plough single-mindedly and headlong into, that's your career. So if that is what a career is, then if you're a Christian, can you see you've already got one? You've already got a career, which is Christian ministry, which is serving Christ. Because the one big project of your life, if you're a Christian, is to, is to serve Christ. To plough yourself single-mindedly headlong into that, to devote yourself to that, that is your career. You don't need another one. And part of your career, you know, just a part of it, just one category of your career serving Christ is going to be in the workplace. Or perhaps raising children in, her, in a home. Or earning money to be generous to other people. Much of that career will be outside the workplace, running a home, raising children, serving in church, doing voluntary work. 
But all of it comes under the bigger heading of your career as a disciple of Christ. And you then see your job as part of your Christian career to minister the gospel, to love your neighbours, to make disciples. And it's not an alternative to the Christian ministry career. For example, in Luke 9, Jesus calls a man to follow him, but the man replies, let me first go and bury my dead. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. He's saying, you've got a priority. This is the, the career that the Christian has. If you're going to follow me, your first duty is to proclaim the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. This is not said to Christian ministers, this is said to the whole church. Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. That Ecclesiastes word. And the rest of the letter is absolutely clear that this work of the Lord is particularly disciple-making work, work that lasts into eternity, godliness, evangelism. That's what lasts. And this is what life is about. Therefore, the big question is not what job shall I do? The big question is not even am I called to full-time ministry? The big question is how will I use the whole of my life, including my work, for the kingdom of Jesus? And so fifthly then, just very quickly, if you have choices... If you have choices, make choices for the gospel. I say if because actually the choices are a great privilege, aren't they? They're a great privilege of our, our wealthy age. If you're born in a different part of the world or a different age, you would do what your dad did. If your dad was a slave, you'd be a slave. If he was a miner, you'd be a miner. If he was a baker, you'd be a baker and so on. But for a tiny minority of us in this wealthy modern world, we get to choose. We get the incredible luxury of choosing what we do for a living. So if you have a choice, here are four things to, three things to consider. Firstly, don't choose a job because of the status it gives. Your status is found in Christ. I've already said quite a lot about this. I don't need to say much more. But let your ambition be to serve Christ. And don't worry about what people are going to think of you. If you end up working in a coffee shop or a hairdresser, you can do that in a New Testament loving way. You can do that as part of your gospel ministry. You can do that to be generous. Even work that is boring, tedious, unsatisfying, it is still part of this world. You can do that in a Christian way, working in Christ. Of course, if you get the chance to do something that you enjoy and are good at, then do it by all means. You're completely free to do that. But don't make that your God. Secondly, don't choose a job that will hinder personal godliness or gospel ministry. Don't choose a job that will hinder personal godliness or gospel ministry. See, there are particular temptations in some jobs that are not good for us as Christians. Greed, competition, culture. There's a culture in some big financial companies, for example, of sending people abroad all over the place. They're just, they're just always moving from one place to another. They can never settle in a church and have a ministry. Keep that in mind. Be careful of shift work, for example. It can be a double-edged sword. You can use it for the gospel, but you, it can be incredibly unhelpful for church ministry. I've got a friend who has a son who uh, uh, took on shift work. I think he was making Christmas puddings. And it was something like um, 10 o'clock at night till 6 o'clock in the morning six days a week while he had a university degree <laughs> thought it was a great idea it lasted a week he was going to pay off his uh, loan or something be careful of shift work because you've got to sleep at the end of the day be careful of uh, opportunities that uh, or, or the kind of workplace where you don't see people you don't have any opportunity to witness people uh, to witness people 
And think about the way you work, it will be noted. If you're hardworking, you're honest, you're conscientious, just, generous, submitting to those in authority, serving with those uh, with enthusiasm, you'll be noticed in the workplace. And you might want to catch some of the workers. Just put your hand up if you do work. If you're not a student, put your hand up if you have a paid job. Teachers, um, administrators, administrator. Um, Craig, what is it you do? <laughs> Neil, um, sort of working from home, computer data stuff, TA, teacher, student worker. What is a student worker? Um, talk to one of those. Oh, sorry. Um, PhD. Yeah. Was that we? We. Okay, no. Um, so full-time boffin. Um, so talk to one of these people after and just, just ask them, some, what, are the, what are the challenges, what are the opportunities for witnessing in the workplace? And so on, Joe Sandwich doesn't have a lot of those opportunities to witness in the workplace. Um, but ask those kind of questions. What are the pros and cons of your job? Ask a teacher, for example. You know, what are the pros and cons of being a teacher? That kind of thing. Um, but then the positive corollary is the last point. Do whatever you can to maximize gospel ministry both inside and outside of work. And for many people this means lots of small decisions, not necessarily the big decision. It might mean not saying yes to that promotion if it means more money, more status at the cost of your ministry. So I met an old, my old boss in fact, when I, I used to work for an insurance company and he was my uh, line manager for a while. And I met him at the FIC conference in Blackpool last week after I don't know how many years. And um, he was someone who's working his way up this insurance company. He'd recently got almost to the top of Aviva, biggest insurance company in, uh, I think, in, in Europe possibly. And very, very senior position. And he said, no, I'm not going to take that job because I want to give myself to my church. I'm serving as an elder. I'm running youth groups and things like that. So he turned down the, this fantastic promotion, which would have been the culmination of his career, uh, so he could work for the church. That's a wonderful example of maximizing gospel ministry, of putting your career uh, for Jesus first. Having said that, you might not need to say no to the promotion because if you are sticking your neck out for Christ in the workplace, that might do it for you. You might not get the promotion, but that's okay because you're working in Christ. And remember, the gospel work that matters, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 again, Therefore, my dear brother, stand firm and let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. So this is kingdom work, this is gospel work, this is the priority, because we know what lasts into the new creation. And this is your life's work, if you're a Christian. This is your life's work. No matter what else you end up doing to earn money, this is your job. This is your mission. And so what we must do as Christians is put that stake in the ground and work out all the other decisions and priorities around it. And what that means, finally, for some people who have the opportunity, the desire, the tested character, the ability, the right thing to do will be to give up paid work and be set aside for full-time gospel, gospel ministry. And that is a question that we haven't thought about tonight because that's what we're going to be digging into at Spur.